0: So kick back, relax, and have some fun with David and Chris. Yeah, full, simple, simple. Digital Kill the Radio Star starts right. Come Blood. Some say that my
1: name is All right, everybody, welcome back to the Digital Kill, the Radio Star Podcast. As always, I am one of your hosts, David, and my good buddy, Chris, is on the line with me from Memphis. Chris, how are you doing?
2: Man, I'm doing well. How are you,
1: David? Oh, I can't complain. Uh, I, I've got the week off, and so there's uh, going to be a lot of music being listened to this week. Uh, I got a lot of new vinyl in, so... Uh, I'll be uh, listening to that. So I want to thank everybody that's been listening these last couple of weeks to our uh, August of Americana uh, series. Uh, we talked about Uncle Tupelo the first week, and we talked about kind of the second the second wave bands that came from that breakup and uh, that music becoming really popular. Um, and as we talked last week, 1994 was like a pivotal year in, in, in all of that. So this week we're really lucky because um, – the band Blue Mountain is uh, a band that really helped to change my musical taste and kind of helped with my uh, going from like in high school, listening to like Poison and Warrant and all that. And, and I got I was a freshman in 94, and I started getting into to Widespread Panic, the Almond Brothers, and there was a, a local band in Oxford, Mississippi at the time called Blue Mountain. And I saw them, they played at our fraternity house one night, and I still put that show up there. Some of the greatest shows I've ever seen. So it is a it is a real honor this week to have their lead singer and guitar player uh, and an all around uh, great musician, Carrie Hudson, on the show. Hey, Carrie, how are you? I'm still alive.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's a good so thing.
3: Were you Were you living in Oxford when we played your fraternity?
1: Yeah, yeah. I started uh, in '94.
3: Uh huh. Neat. That was a great time to be in Oxford
1: it, it, it really, it really was. We had, uh, you know, you guys played all the time better than Ezra. It seemed like they were the house, the house band at the GN. Um, you know, right. A lot of bands came up through there. Jojo Herman was still in town, you know, and would go uh-huh. to proud Larry's and
3: play the piano. It was a, it was a really good time for music. I think. It was an amazing time for music and in ox, I mean, all over the country, but Oxford was a hot spot Um, and there were more bands that there were more bands than I can remember. But at the same time, about twenty-five miles away, uh, at the same time was that blues scene uh, built around Junior Kimbrough's Juke Joint. Yeah, that
1: was a big deal to go up there on Sunday nights. <laughs> uh- I, <know.
3: laughs> I went every Sunday. Uh, Any time that we weren't on the road. Uh, that's where I would go on Sunday. I was, uh, it kind of became my church, you know, what I did on Sunday.
1: Well, I do remember during the Voodoo Lounge tour after the show, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards made their way down there. And I know you, the, some of the members of U2 had made their way down there. So, right. Uh, it's a shame all of that's kind of gone by the wayside, to be honest with you. Yeah. You know, I think,
3: and I've been living, uh, I can date how long I've been gone from Oxford by how old my daughter is because when, when I met her mom is when I left town and she's 18 now. So that's how long I've been gone. Um, and I'm a little bit out of touch, even though I stay in touch with, um, the people that do the hill country picnic, Mm -hmm. but I, you know, some of the, some of the kids that, uh, of the children of those great blues guys are still working, but I don't know if it's as strong as it was.
2: Well, Kerry, um, first of all, pleasure to have you. Thanks for, thanks for doing this with us. Um, it's, it's an honor. So just to get started, before we really dive deep into your career, because we definitely want to hear some more about the Oxford Days. Um, you mentioned the Hilltop Picnic. Uh, man, that's a good time there, too. But um, just if you could... Tell us a little bit how this new world we're in right now, the past few months, holding up in the, the age of COVID. You mentioned before we got on that you've been playing shows. You've been lucky enough to do some live music, which is uh, kind of hard to find these
3: days. So how are you holding up? I'm doing well. Um, right around the time of the... Right when the pandemic started and everything shut down, uh, I bought some home recording equipment. And... Um, I spent the first six weeks or so uh, writing and recording, and I've got a new record that uh, I'm just kind of finishing up the artwork on now. should be out sometime in the next month. So that was a very positive thing. And it was also nice to take a break from gigging um, and just sit around and do some different stuff, you know, like, uh, spend a little more time on the river and play the piano and stuff like that.
2: Awesome. Yeah. We've, we've talked about this. We wonder if this, all this downtime, that, you know, people not being out on the road, people not playing shows, is it going to have this surge in new music? You know? So that's, I guess there's, there's, there's been a whole lot of good that's coming out of this, but for a couple of music doors like David and I, that's a good thing.
3: Yeah. That's my expectation that we're going to see a real burst of creativity. Uh, from artists of all different uh, types, you know, visual artists, uh, writers, musicians, uh, you know, there's two, if you're a musician, there's two different aspects to it. There's writing and then there's performing. And if you're busy performing, you don't have time to write. Um, so.
1: Well, I always joke with people. I, I know there's going to be a flood of uh, prog rock bands are going to have a bunch of COVID concept <laughs> albums coming out, you know, <laughs> things that we always ask people uh when they come on here is two questions what's your earliest memory of music and who was your first um favorite artist
3: uh for sure my my first musical experiences were uh in church um i grew up in the baptist church everybody in my family went to church and uh we sang and i sang in church um And when I was growing up in Baptist church, it was like the old hymn book that had things like amazing grace bringing in the sheaves, uh, stuff like that, you know, great old old Scottish and Irish melodies. And, um, then my first favorite artist, wow, that's a tough one. I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, uh, I, that, that's a tough one. I mean, my my first concert, my parents took me to see Floyd Kramer, the piano player. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but but really, you know, I mean, I was really into stuff like the Carpenters and stuff like that. You know, until I hit the until I hit about twelve years old, and when I was about twelve, um, I started using my rabbit ears to pick up this classic this rock and roll station out of Jackson. And uh, this would have been in 1976. So they were playing kind of what was then underground music that became classic rock. So at that point, I basically quit listening to the Carpenters and, um, and, you know, got into Led Zeppelin. And-
2: well, if I can elaborate on that a little bit too, I mean, what the style of music, and we find it interesting because David talked about the first episode. we, we talked about you know Uncle Tupelo and there there's no doubt you know you can hear the the Stooges the replacements all that mixed with the Louven brothers and and all of the old time country. Mm-hmm. What was I guess what was the musical evolution that, that kind of drew you on the path you know the the path that you went on the style of music that you created.
3: Well, um, you know when I got when I got started. Uh, classic rock and 70s outlaw country was the music I grew up playing and learning. Uh, by outlaw country, I mean stuff like, um, you know, Waylon and Willie and stuff like that. So when I moved to Oxford and started playing music, uh, my first band was a cover band. We were playing college fraternities. Uh, my cousin Chris had started a band with John Stewart. And they were playing uh, eight, late 80s and 90s alternative stuff like the Smiths and the Cure and uh, stuff like that. So that cover band started to morph into an original band. And it was when I started to write originals that some of the music from my childhood, some of it which I didn't even really remember being into started to surface my my grandfather was really into jimmy rogers my grandpa was born in 1907 and uh i just remember listening to jimmy rogers with him a lot but not really paying attention to it it was just part of the background and then when i started writing those kind of things uh particularly after i spent a year living in los angeles you know you go away from home and then you figure out, uh, this like James Joyce, you know, he leaves Ireland, he starts writing about Ireland. Uh, and as a writer, you ultimately discover that you have to write about what you know, you know. So I started writing uh, from the classic rock and the alternative with a flavor of that, but also the music I grew up with, which was a lot of old time country and outlaw country. And then, because I was living in Oxford, uh, I'd always been into the blues, but I started to meet and hang out with these blues guys, and that became part of it. Yeah.
1: Well, you mentioned, you know, uh, your cousin being in a band with, with with John, and I mean, for those that aren't familiar, that's John Stewart, that's in Wilco right now. Um, is that kind of how you got with him and the Hilltop started?
3: That's right. Um, my cousin Chris and John were uh, living in a dorm together and then they might have been in the same fraternity. I can't remember, but uh, they started a band that played cover songs and my cousin got married and I was looking to get into music and they were, they were working. I mean, they were working like two or three times a week playing bars like Foresters and, As I got into the group, right about that time, we started playing all of the college towns in the SEC. We were playing Tuscaloosa, Baton Rouge, Nashville at Vanderbilt, um, Mississippi State, uh, Delta State, playing all these college fraternities and fraternity bars. So we did that for two or three years and actually made a lot of money uh, and had some wild times as you can imagine but it pretty soon. It morphed into, I started writing originals and John started writing originals. We started including two or three originals in our set. And then at some point we kind of made the switch came an original group. And when we did that, we started touring. And so we started going to St. Louis. We started going to Minneapolis. And that's when we started making groups like Uncle Tupelo, Jayhawks, bands like that, Bottle Rockets.
1: Well, that's what yeah, no, you, pretty yeah, we, mu- you pretty much answered my question. It's the, I was going to ask you, so you guys primarily did do the college circuit with the Hilltops, and then it, at, toward the end, it sounds like you expanded to like St. Louis and stuff.
3: Well, St. Louis, and really, uh, you know, what, what we discovered was um, – if we were going to play our original music, we really needed to move away from playing the college towns. I mean, we still did that, the college towns in the South, but there was a whole bar circuit at the time. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of that really great bar in Memphis. Um, Antenna club. Thank you. Yes, Chris. Thank you. So there was a whole, I think most of those clubs now have gone, but the antenna was a perfect example because it was painted black on the inside and, It was real grungy you know but there was a whole group of bars like that around the country and so we started playing those bars from st louis to memphis to minneapolis to chicago to new york basically everywhere east of the mississippi uh the carolinas you know so you know one thing
2: that I maybe shifting a little bit here, but one thing David and I have talked about a lot is I think around the time when you guys are really getting going, you're, you're really kind of starting to take off. This, this sound is really forming. You know, that's when music that David and I, we were when high, when we were in high school, you know, uh, we talked about how ridiculous the term alternative music was because it was the mainstream. And right. what you guys were doing was really the alternative at that time. And I feel like the, You were kind of becoming, because David mentioned us going to Ole Miss, that was the college radio. That was the alternative. And I think people forget that because we just hear those terms, that term alternative music. And that's not what was on the radio anymore, what you guys were doing. So I'm I'm assuming that you guys probably did. You already talked about doing really well in the college market, probably on college radio. That what was the overall, you talked about some of the places, what was that scene like? You know, you talked about hooking up with the, I mean, the Bottle Rockets, uh, Uncle Tupelo, the Jayhawks. I mean, what was that vibe like back then?
3: Well, it was interesting. Uh, the, vi- the vibe amongst all those groups was really kind of very uh, friendly. I would call it more friendly than competitive because, you uh, there was uh, there was a certain group of people like the Bottle Rockets, like the Jayhawks, like Uncle Tupelo and ourselves that were doing this thing where whether we were kind of coming from a place of punk rock or classic rock or whatever, we were putting in some folk and country elements into it. And then for Blue Mountain, some blues elements, you know? Uh, and so it was, the term alternative country, to me, doesn't fit as well as Americana, uh, you know. Um, but it, it was just, it was really cool to run into bands. Um, and then Jason and the Scorchers were like a, a great band like that. It was a little bit older than us. J mm-hmm. Jayhawks were a little bit older than us. But it was a group of people that were incorporating uh an alternative five, but using folk and country influences. And that was very interesting, exciting. And it gave you, a, it made for good co Uh And it made, it, it was, it was really great. I, I'm really proud to be associated with that scene.
2: I wish I had a time machine right now, to be honest with you.
3: <laughs> and I know that I'm forgetting a lot of, I'm forgetting a lot of great groups, you know, um,
1: well, I wanted to ask you something about that because obviously you went on to put out an album with the Hill. The Hilltops put out an album called Big Black River. There's a song in there I've always wanted to ask you about: "Broke Down and Busted." Um, mm-hmm. That was some pretty biting social commentary at the time, and I, I kind of throw it in to kind of like Neil Young's "Rocking in the Free World." Uh, you know, kind of the same. What kind of was the inspiration for that song? Because it, it, the, the song is just always kind of it's. All, I've always been drawn to it.
3: Uh well that's that's my mom's favorite song that I've written by the way and I've <laughs> written it a long time ago. She doesn't like all my songs but she likes that <laughs> one. Well, you know it's um if you're on the road a lot and you're going through truck stops a lot, uh you're going to see a lot of homeless people and it's that's obviously the context of the lyrics is um is, is just witnessing the, the travails of, of, uh, of poor people that are out on the road. And, um, and, then, and then, yeah, there was definitely a Neil Young influence with some of the music, too. He's definitely one of my, my huge guys. But, um, yeah, that, that song, some of my songs come from like a humorous and some from like a cynical perspective. That one's from a very sincere kind of here's a problem. I don't know what to do about it, but I can see it, you know. Uh,
2: and and could you tell us, Carrie, moving on to from the hilltops, as as you're forming Blue Mountain, you know, you had the you had the twins, Lori and John. Lori was with you in, in Blue Mountain. You had John going off with Uncle Tupelo. I, I guess how the formation of you getting Blue Mountain, John, how he ended up in Uncle Tupelo.
3: Well, uh, the hilltops. You know, going on the road is really tough on a on a band. Um, for instance, I love the Rolling Stones, but I never thought the Rolling Stones were the world's greatest rock and roll band. They're just a band that didn't break up. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you ever saw Uncle Tupelo when they were a three piece play play live, there was never a better rock band than that. But it's it's a very difficult dynamic when you have more than one songwriter in a group. Uh, it's, it's very competitive. And ultimately, um, I think that's probably what happened with the Hilltops, you know, John and I were both writing and we were, uh, good friends with uncle Tupelo. They would, at the beginning of their career, they would come to Oxford and play at, um, at, um, City Grocery, and we were instrumental in making that happen. And then we would go play with them in St. Louis. And so we were friends with those guys. And when Uncle Tupelo did their first European tour, they got in touch with John and they said, Hey, you want to go to Europe with us and be a guitar tech? So he goes to Europe, he does the guitar tech thing. And then not long after they got back from that tour, They started working on, I think it was Anadon, and they morphed into a five-piece. And so at that point, John got the call to play bass. He had he had done a lot of bass. He kind of switched off between bass and guitar in the Hilltops. And uh, he's a he's a world. I don't need to say anything about his bass player. Obviously, he's world class. Yeah. And he's a great guy. You know, he has the chemistry to. he's got great people skills. I mean, he's the last last man standing in Wilco beside Jeff, you know. So uh.
1: well, I've heard Jeff say that that band can basically absorb any change except for John leaving. And he said <laughs> right. he said, you know, at that point like, you know, I don't think we can uh, uh take another change, but I wanted to ask you uh about the the first album you did for Blue Mountain and I I honestly this whole time I thought Dog Days was your debut album, but it turns out I'm I'm wrong on that. And so I looked up the track listing on I guess the first album y'all put out and there's some a couple of songs that were on both albums. Did you were they reworked on Dog Days or did they originally sound the was the version on Dog Days the same version that was on the the first record?
3: They were reworked. Um you know that that first record is we kind of, it's eponymous, but we call it the light bright record. And people are still very interested in that album. I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, I thought some of the songs we didn't really do justice and we had settled into our real lineup um, with Frank couch. And so when we went to make dog days, as opposed to the Lightbrite album, we had a record deal, we had a manager, we had a booking agent. So we were definitely pulling our best material on uh, trying to make a cohesive album. Um, I forgot what the question was. Just, I mean,
1: those songs that appeared on both albums, the the version on Dog Days is
3: different than the versions on the, oh, the first yeah, album? Oh, yeah, they're different. We recorded them again, but the arrangements were pretty much the same. Um we just kind of felt like that. the very first time we did it, we didn't really have an opportunity to get it out to a big audience, but we had a record deal with the um, Dog Days. We had a great producer, Eric Gamble. who went on to do the Bottle Rockets. Um, and actually, whenever we went in to cut Dog Days, Eric told us, he said, um, before I produce a band, I like to hear them play live. So he hooked us up with this live gig in Springfield, Missouri, and I just heard from him a month ago, he said, guess what, there's a a DAT recording of that gig, and so we're working with Roscoe now to remaster the live show.
1: Wow. That'd be Um,
3: awesome. Yeah, Yeah, it it sounds really great. I'm like, wow, we were tight as ticks,
0: man.
2: (laughs) Yeah, man, I'd Um, love to hear that. So. The, the,
3: so you get the record deal. I imagine
2: having the record deal, that probably helped, too, with the creativity, you know, a little bit more financial backing, better probably better technology, better equipment. But one thing that I don't know if you get asked this very often, but, you know, I've always, coming up, David can tell you this, I've always been into all kinds of music. I mean, I, I, there's really not anything off limits for me. And back in the day, I listened to a lot of, you know, Life of Agony, typo negative, and they were on Roadrunner (laughs) Records. Right, you guys. It seemed like Roadrunner was nothing but metal, and Blue Mountain. That's correct. (laughs) How in the world did that happen? Were they? I I guess I've always wondered: Was this Roadrunner's attempt at trying to branch out? Were you the guys one of the ones that were trying to get them out of side of
3: just metal? That's that's absolutely right, Chris. They were attempting to branch out and um kind of going in a more uh i don't know how to describe it but a more earthy direction and you know in retrospect i wish we would have stayed with them it wasn't a bad relationship it's just that it was a lot of the typical conflicts you have with them um with a record company but yeah man you know a lot of their Steady customers that were into typo negative would buy every album that came out. And they had a lot of like, they had a lot of like, uh, people calling them up saying, What is this crap? What is this country crap? You know, uh, but they really did a great job with us, especially on that first album. And they were also successful in branching out, it just took them a few more years. But you know, they they're the label that signed and had the hits with Nickelback right that was Roadrunner and so you know that I think what they were trying to do they were pretty successful with Blue Mountain but what they were really trying to do they succeeded with uh, Nickelback not to open the Nickelback back. So right. so well, so
1: so Kerry, can we say that you're responsible for Nickelback
2: <laughs> No you can't <laughs> Don't put that on him it's not um, fair it's, No but I but it did make me wonder, did you, and you've already, you really answered the question, too, because my follow-up was going to be, do you feel like with being on a label like that, that they they promoted you? You know, they, you got the proper promotion.
3: Yeah, they, they did a great job. Um, they financially helped us get on the road, and being on the road was like... Um, besides playing the gigs there were also a lot of in stores and there was a lot of radio um a lot of radio promotion and also radio interviews and i in retrospect i think they did a really good job you know i i, I suspect if we would have hung in there with them um it would have gone okay um but you know hindsight's twenty twenty. you know it's like at time. We started to feel like it wasn't such a great match and maybe we should look for somebody else. Mm-hmm. But uh, but they they did a fine job, you know?
2: I remember I even talked one night, I, I talked to, uh, this was years ago, of course, I talked to Joey Z of Life of Agony. One time I was just talking to him and and, and I mentioned Blue Mountain. He's like, yeah, I remember seeing that there. The, I, I don't know if <laughs> you remember seeing, you guys are seeing all your stuff around around the, uh, the record company. And Because even he was aware. It's like, yeah, I remember that.
3: Yeah, <laughs> everybody like, yeah. else was in black leather and spikes. <laughs> and then there we are, like, standing out in a field, you know, <laughs> in a rusty old car. Looking yeah, the big. Mississippi
2: folks coming in.
3: <laughs> yeah. But it, that part of it, one of the parts that was really fun, too, is that they were based on, uh, I think, Houston Street. They were based somewhere in Manhattan. And so we would blow in from Mississippi and – all of a sudden, we're in Manhattan eating out in Italian restaurants and, you know, living the life, um, staying at the Gramercy Park. It was fun.
1: Well, that first album that you put out for Roadrunner was Dog Days. And, and I, I'm, it's no secret, it's a desert island disc for me. I don't think, I think it's a perfect It's There's not a bad song on the album. And there's not, you know, a whole lot of albums you can really say about that. I do, there's two songs, though, I've always wanted to ask you about. The first one is Mountain Girl. Is that about Jerry Garcia's "Mountain Girl"? No,
3: that's uh I, I found out about her later. Laurie and I were living in Los Angeles, and we used to go up to uh, Big Bear, and so that song somehow is connected in my mind with us going up in the mountains. Uh, well, written, Los th-
1: there's you know there's a line in it about the guitar playing, and so uh, yeah. I've I've had other people tell me they thought that's what it was about, and I was like, well. I'm gonna have him on here. I'm gonna. I may look like an idiot uh-huh. for asking him, uh, but, uh, but but I'll ask him.
3: No, I know who Mountain Girl is. Jerry's uh, one of Jerry's main ladies, but uh, no, that would be more about Laurie than Mount than Jerry's. Okay, and lady. then and then
1: band, a band called Bud. Is that kind of a semi autograph, uh, autobiographical song about maybe the hilltops or Blue Mountain in the early days?
3: It is about us, but it also referenced, uh, there was a band out of Memphis called a band called Bud. And they were sued by Budweiser. And so they changed their name to the Grifters. Uh, Yeah, and so I like that band a lot. We used to play a lot of gigs with them at the antenna. They were kind of more like Sonic Youth sounding uh, who I also liked, um, but the lyrics were definitely about our lifestyle—riding around in a van and you know getting trashed—and <laughs> the good old days, not bathing and yeah all that kind of stuff.
2: <laughs> well, now uh, Carrie too. When with the follow-up to Dog Days, she had Homegrown, and I you know I was refreshing myself with that today. And man, that's that's a phenomenal record. And I feel like where we started on this you know, 15 20 minutes ago when we were talking about your influences I feel like you're hearing even more of that blues the bluegrass the just the country influences in that was that a deliberate direction to take it even more that route even more in that uh
3: you know it, it wasn't a it wasn't a deliberate thing it just kind of more reflected what I was listening to at the time uh I was really getting into some old 20s and 30s folk music like uh that Harry Smith collection and also um going out to Junior Kimbros a lot and starting to hear these old blues guys like Son Thomas. Um but on a personal level when I had time off during that time I would go up in the mountains around uh, through tour and I kind of became aware of Asheville and uh, Black Mountain and those areas. So I was going up there. And so there was kind of that vibe, too, you know, kind of a, um, you know, words are a powerful thing, too. In retrospect, when I think about the name Blue Mountain, we named it after a town in Mississippi, but really, that's kind of what we were trying to do. And I'm saying this from looking back on it is kind of combine rock and roll with blues and mountain music, you know.
1: Well, that album contains what I think is the best song you've ever written, and that's Pretty Please." Uh, oh, wow, okay. That's just such a – that is it's, it's a beautiful song. Um, and I also love Bloody 98. I remember when I was in college, because uh, my uncle lived in Mobile, so we'd have to drive to Mobile. And somebody goes, what is that called, Bloody 98? I said, you've clearly never driven from Hattiesburg to Mobile <laughs> before, before, the, before the four lane.
3: It was dangerous, man. I mean, and there's like uh... – there's so many, so many, so much logging going on there that you can come around a curve and all of a sudden you're right on top of a, a right you know, 18 Wheeler hauling, uh, hauling pulpwood. But we, we, I heard that phrase. Uh, we had a band van that had a CB in it. And uh, so I heard the truckers referring to that highway as bloody 98. And that's where I got the name was from listening to the truck
1: drivers well I wanted to ask you about one other song on the album there's a song on there called Myrna Lee and -hmm. a couple years ago Wilco uh, did a remaster and re-release of the AM record and there's a version of Wilco doing on there doing Myrna Lee on there does that date back to like the Hilltops
3: days or that's cool I need to hear the Wilco version of it Uh, that is a song written by John Uh, that That's not even really... We have a collaboration with John on a later record. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Gentle Soul. But John wrote that song completely on his own. And I'm not sure when I heard it, but I'm thinking it's like maybe at Christmas one year at the Steeritz. You know, Laurie and I were married Mm -hmm. for 10 years, so we'd all get together at Christmas time and uh, have jams with Laurie's dad on the banjo and and i think i heard john play that song then and we played it. and i was like wow that's a great song can i cover it and i've had a couple of people come up to me and say that's the best song you've ever written it's good so one. i just said thanks <laughs> <laughs> but that's john's song
2: well as you reflect in and when you and we'll get to your your solo work as well but you think back on blue mountain is this yeah, we talk, David and I talk about, you know, their Americana, the alt country, uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, we sometimes refer to it as the No Depression era of, of music. Did you, I guess you could, did you ever fit, could you ever envision that your band would be such a staple? Of those formidable years, the bands that really shaped that genre. You know, when we're talking about the Bottle Rockets, Blue Mountain, Jayhawks, Uncle Tupelo, Old 97s, all those bands. And Blue Mountain is one that's just stood the test of time and is one of the more important bands of that era. I mean, it's got to be an amazing feeling. Could you ever have envisioned that?
3: Well, it really wasn't where my head was to think about you know how you're going to look back on it um i'm always kind of focused on the present like right now i'm really thinking about the new album i'm about to put out but there there was definitely a feeling that we were like wow this is really clicking this is working people are responding to it and you know i i you can't say my band was great. You know, that's not for me to say, but I can say this. We were really trying hard and we were really putting our hearts and soul into it. We didn't have other jobs. That's all we did. And, um, we weren't even necessarily trying to become rich and famous. We were really trying to work on the music part of it. And, uh, without bragging about it, I can say I'm really proud of the, uh, body of work that blue mountain did. I'm, really proud of it and uh whenever people mention us and with groups like uncle tupelo and wilco and uh the jayhawks it's an honor
2: well you may not be able to say your band was great david and i can (laughs) yeah cool
0: thanks
1: (laughs) now carrie your your solo material i find very interesting because um um, you definitely stay true to your roots. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a lot of bluegrass type country on there. And then you have, you know, the, the blue stuff is, um, and you said that you're working on a new album. Is your, is your new album going to kind of stay in that same lane or can we expect something a little different?
3: No, it's going to, it's, it's definitely going to be pretty much cut from the same cloth, you know? Uh, you know, as you, as you, grow as a musician, you know, you always incorporate influences. I'm a big fan of Django Reinhardt. There's a little bit of Django in this new record, but I also find that, um, you know, when I go too far afield from the music that of my region, which I kind of consider my region to be the southeast, basically the Appalachians to New Orleans, whenever I try to get too far away from that, it feels kind of goofy you know well I'm and so yeah it's just it's it's more of the same
1: i'm a big fan of the song jelly roll that you did yeah i really really i really like that one and you know yeah. i watch your like your your facebook lives that you've been doing and stuff like that and right. uh it's uh it's just like you said it's it's music that represents appalachia to to new orleans if you watch any of that you're going to get a little bit of that every time
3: Jelly Roll was my attempt to kind of write a junior Kimbrough groove. And then I was fortunate. Uh, part of my career was when I wasn't working with Blue Mountain to make extra money, i go out and play with these blues guys. I um, played with Big Jack Johnson. I played a few gigs with R.L. Burnside when Kenny couldn't make it. And I went out with uh, Bobby Rush on a few gigs. Wow. So hearing these guys do like their double entendre stuff and their suggestive and sometimes downright dirty stuff, you know, (laughs) that's where that comes from. My mom's not, that's not my mom's favorite (laughs) thing that I do, but uh, I also feel like that's kind of a cool thing about Blue Mountain and my solo stuff is it's, uh, it represents Mississippi in that way, you know, it's bluesy.
1: Well, did you ever by chance? find out if Jimmy Carter listened to his song.
3: Yes, uh Roadrunner sent a copy to the Carter Center of Dog Days when it came out. So, uh Blue Mountain was playing this gig in Atlanta. This courier comes in and he says, "I've got a got a letter for you guys." And we look at it and we open it up and it's on presidential the like little gold seal stationery, and it's a letter from Jimmy, <laughs> and it says, "Just wanted to let you know I got your album, Dog Days, and I really like the album, especially the song about the peanut farmer." Best <laughs> wishes, Jimmy Carter. Do you still have no, it? That's awesome. Yes, it's framed. It's in my house. <laughs>
2: that is awesome. Well, hey, Carrie, you, you talked about the new album, and I don't think we said this before um, we started recording. So mm-hmm. when? When do you think people will be able to hear this?
3: Uh, You know, I think that what I'm going to do is present it on... I've been talking to Eric Amble about Bandcamp, and I'm going to present it on Bandcamp sometime uh, between the end of August and the middle of September, and then just kind of gauge some interest for um, making vinyl and do some vinyl. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I was getting ready to do vinyl, and now I'm like... Uh, I'm not sure if I can go out and sell it or even sell it by mail at the moment, you know. So it's, I think it'll definitely be up on band count uh, by the middle of September.
1: Well, and, and people, and the best way for people to follow you is on your Facebook page. Is that right?
3: Yeah, that, that's a great. I have a, I have a website, but Facebook is the one I'm most active on uh, as far as doing um, shows. And then if people will. Go to Bandcamp in about two or three weeks. They'll find me there, and I, after talking to Eric, I think we're going to release the um, the Blue Mountain Live thing on Bandcamp, and I'm going to try to utilize that. Um, well, that, I, I've
1: I've been a big supporter of Bandcamp since COVID. Um, Chris and I are both believers in paying for music. Um, Where thank you, you, you know, I, well, you know, I I messaged you earlier this summer and bought uh, Dog Days from you on, on vinyl. Um, We're real big on that, you know. Um, And Bandcamp is a great way for artists to, you know, make their living uh, because you can't stream it; you have you have to pay for it. I I bought three Jayhawks albums on there recently. Um, um, They released some in Sunvolt, I think, just put one on there uh, that you could like download. So I'm a big proponent of that, and you know they and they have certain days during the quarantine where. I guess they don't take a cut and the artists get all the money from it. So I think Bandcamp's is a great way to go.
3: Well, cool. That, you know, that's what I've been hearing. I'm kind of technologically illiterate. I'm Skyping from my friend's phone. (laughs) Uh, So, but that's what I, I had a long conversation with Eric Campbell recently, and that's what I took away from him. And, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to put the stuff up on Spotify. I get statements from Spotify and they're just laughable, you know? You'll, uh, you're will you getting paid percentages of a cent. It's like, and everybody's like, well, you know, it's good promotion. And I'm like, that's the oldest line in the
2: book. Yeah, I mean, and that's the that CEO of Spotify. No, know he's recently come under fire with artists too because, yeah, if you if people if they haven't seen that, look it up. I mean, get a, even greedier.
3: Well, you know, the fact of the matter, like I say, I don't think I saw an artist recently, I can't remember his name, but he's from Ireland and he said, Look, if you wanna get my album, you can get it from me via Bandcamp or something, but I'm not gonna put it on Spotify. Well, if enough artists just said, Guess what? We're not gonna do this, uh, it would go away. You know no, you're or right. They or they would come around and you know, it's not that I I get it, you're streaming it. You're not getting a physical product. I'm not asking for a lot of money but you know to give somebody 0.000% of listening to it it's just not fair to the artist
2: Well, what about too we're talking about the your your albums and all is there is there a website that's easier for people to buy merchandise you know because that's another one we're talking about buying physical products of music but also wow. we're we're big on merchandise as well buying t-shirts you know any way that you can support artist
3: yeah you know i i haven't really Done a whole lot of t shirts and stuff to be honest. I'm uh, I, I can uh, Laurie and I have talked about doing some retro Blue Mountain shirts, that would be really fun for me, you know. But uh, I don't know, I'm kind of funny, I don't necessarily need to see my face on a shirt. I'm like, <laughs> but but the I, retro, I, you know, I think I look better during the COVID thing when I put the mask on. So. Well, the
2: retro would be cool. Like, I got I, one long ago, I got an REM Fables
3: you know retro and that i
2: mean it's just badass has the tour dates on the
3: back everything right right yeah something like that from blue mountain i'm i'm definitely overdue uh for a visit with laurie we live about five six hours apart now uh but we're we're still close and there's no problems with us we just kind of you know have gone on to do other things
1: i I love that that uh the album you put out with her uh the one with a midnight in mississippi on it uh was, yeah, that, right. that was that was a really good album. Um that was yeah, that that what was I'm I'm drawing a blank on the name of it.
3: I think uh, it is Midnight in Wait, it's Midnight in Mississippi. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah so yeah, real. I listened yeah. to it earlier today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't think of no, it either. I'm really proud of that album and that album came out on vinyl uh and we sold out of it real quick. That's the kind of stuff I would love to um you know i've hit this i've kind of hit this age i'm about to turn 57 and i i certainly love to play shows uh but i've kind of realized that i need to spend at least some time on the archive and the back catalog because the back catalog is big at this point you know and it, it takes time to i hope that's something we can make available soon well carrie um
1: this, is, this has been so much fun. I've been, I've been looking forward to this ever since I, I uh, contacted you about six weeks or so ago about doing it. And I know uh, you've got a lot going on. We really appreciate you taking out time to talk to us. Definitely
3: chris and david thank you all for uh doing what you're doing and and uh i've, I've talked to a few people that have been following y'all so oh, cool. thanks for what you're doing and thanks for having me on well
1: Man, Gary, thank you carrie yeah thank you very much you'll just hang on the line care we'll get some more information from you but carrie did want us to uh play out with one of my favorite songs by the jayhawks two angels so here's two angels by the jayhawks and chris and i'll be back with you next week
0: It false love.